Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I mean, what's that football group is doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFF. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? You just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. Morning, Sam. How you doing? Doing good, Steve. You? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, we're back at it. We've, uh, we we want to talk about the best players in the NFL. We did a top 50. Uh, just Was it last week or two weeks ago now? Two. Losing track. Two weeks ago now. We did the top 50 players heading in to the 2020 NFL season. Our colleagues over at the PFF Forecast, they tried a little uh, redraft that was uh, QB-centric, to mm. say the least, right, um, of the best players in the NFL or the, or, you know, from a team-building strategy. Where would you start? Um, so we wanted, yeah, we wanted a nice hot topic like who are the best players at every position. So we're going to go position by position and debate the best players in the NFL. Some are kind of slam dunks. Others, I think, you know, we can embrace debate, especially if you're looking at the next three or four years in the NFL. Also, actual NFL. Well, no, actual news. And for the first time in history, I actually want your baseball take on something. Yes. Um, Let's do never, it. Never, never did I think I could be interested in something enough to actually want to know what you thought about it from what, a baseball perspective what is it minor but, league salaries is it the, no. the, the the labor strife you know the issues going on between the owners and the players what do you want to know christian mccaffrey is attempting a comeback Try as a baseball start pitcher. again cut redo it again get the right name this time christian mccaffrey you no christian hackenberg yeah is attempting a baseball comeback as a pitcher now is it a comeback did he play or is he? Is this come, uh, coming out? He of played in high school. Okay, so that's a comeback. Like, everybody played at some point, right? Isn't that the sort of deal? Well, it's like when we did the, yeah, when we did the sort of team based off other sports. Like you know, people are like, "Wow, this guy's the obvious choice because he was a Heisman quarterback." Yeah, well, that kind of it almost it's, it almost defeats the purpose, right? If like that guy was actually a double like a dual sport player right up until he had to choose yeah. which one to play. As opposed to, but you, you go back all these, you know, anyone, Allen Iverson was a high school quarterback. You go back far enough, everybody was playing all these sports at some point. 
Um, yeah, everyone was yelling at us about Charlie Ward. I, I didn't think of him, to be fair, but, you know. Even if I had, though, I don't think it would... I don't think it was in keeping with the spirit of what we were attempting to achieve, which is, like, take a transplant from one sport who doesn't play the other sport and bring him into this one. Like, that guy was legitimately pro-caliber at both sports and then chose one of them. All right, well, let's get back to the, the anyway, question at hand. It's, Hackenberg. It's, it's, about, yeah, it's about Christian Hackenberg. It, uh, somebody, one of our astute listeners or somebody, one of our new interns, somebody needs to go back and we need to figure out how many Hackenberg mentions per show or per hundred shows or something like that. It's got to be like, enough. It's got to be 60 or 70 mentions per hundred, right? Like it, He makes it into almost every show. And this one is because he is actually in the news. He's trying to make a comeback as a pitcher. And I'll say this. Supposedly he was throwing 90. Right? I mean, 92. I think 92. Relatable. I could do that. Uh, I sent you a pitch recently of me throwing 90 from the batter's box. He wasn't pretty fast, wasn't it? Um, I mean, it was hard to tell. It's one of those things where there was a notable lack of uh, proof of speed. You know, it's one of those things you can go, well, that was 95. Well, I cut, the, yeah. I cut the audio out of the guy with the gun who goes, whoa, 92. Yeah. Like, that's It's really one of those impressive. things. It's like, you know, when they, they ran the... Uh, when they ran all the home pro days that were unverifiable because nobody, you know, because of COVID and stuff, it's like, ah, oh, dude, yeah. we just ran a four-one. Yeah, but you know, if I was lying, like, if I was lying, it would have been ninety-eight or ninety-nine. So, okay. Anyway, with Hackenberg, I don't think it's out of the question that he could, you know, at least make a little bit of a run. I think the, I mean, what do you? What is your question? Is he going to play professionally? Is he going to make it to the majors? Yeah, what so do you this think is, I mean, this is what he's shooting for, right? Like, I'm, I'm now going to become, he's 25 years old, so now he wants to pivot to baseball and become a pro at that, because obviously he wasn't capable of being a pro at football. Uh, so we've cramped out of the NFL, we cramped out of the AAF, even before the AAF crapped out of itself. So now we're taking up baseball. We got a 25-year-old with a 92-mile-an-hour pitch who's only just started. Where are we going? Um, so I think there's a couple things here. It part of it depends on the future of the minor leagues in baseball. COVID has absolutely crushed the minor leagues. A lot of guys are getting released. They probably would have anyway. But Major League Baseball has already been considering downsizing greatly because most teams have six minor league affiliates. So on one hand, six? yes, you start in, you have short season rookie, you have long season rookie, low A, high A, double A, triple A. It's a long road to get there. You know, so, uh, you know, that, I mean, it's AAA. I mean, it was one step away. I mean, it's a level five out of six. But, you know, the, the key there is how many teams, how many opportunities. Um, the thing working for him is he's a pitcher, right? So if you're a position player, if you're an outfielder, catcher, second baseman, you know, if you're a second baseman, there's only like four starting spots in the organization on those top four minor league teams. If you're a pitcher, you could be one of 12 on any of those pitching staffs so that you could stick around. So, yeah, I think he'll probably get an opportunity. I'll say this. As a quarterback, he wasn't just inaccurate. It wasn't like the guy was, like, quick-minded and made all the right reads and just overthrew everybody. Like, his accuracy wasn't great, but everything else was not good either. Like, he was slow to process. The game moved too quick. All of it was just not good for Hackenberg. I think pitching's different, right? So he doesn't have to worry about decision-making and, like, hitting a moving target or anything like that that you have to worry about from a quarterback standpoint. So there'll be a lot of, like, LOL, his accuracy issues. I don't know that he's going to be, you know, you know, walking a, a guy in inning or anything like that. So I think he's, I don't know, he's got a shot. I've never really seen him, but... Am I alone in being surprised that he had a 92-mile-an-hour 
pitch in him right off the bat. Like his people talked about his arm strength. I never saw plus arm strength as a football player. So I think so I think that's where like the mental component of football is challenging, right? Like th- there were a couple throws where you're like, okay, that's the arm, right? Like there it is. But I do think because he was kind of slow to process in football and getting your footwork matched and because like I always I always say like baseball and pitching is like so specific. Like the mound never moves, the plate never moves, and you're just throwing to the same spot over and over and over again, inside, outside, and it just you move you know a couple inches either way. Um, in football, every throw is literally different, right? You have three step drops, five step drops. You have to avoid pressure. You have defenders to throw in and around and over and under and all that stuff. So, um, I think that as much as anything maybe hindered the fact that if you just told Hackenberg wind up as hard as you can and throw the ball as fast as you can like he's got pretty good velocity but you're right like it's not like watching him play football you weren't seeing lasers all over the field like when you watch Josh Allen play football you see lasers all over the field when he unleashes it the ball comes out fast that never really was the case with Hackenberg outside of like a handful of throws at Penn State so I think pitching's more conducive to like he's got the tools and he doesn't have to worry about some of the other stuff the ball will come out okay if you just let it go what so 92 is respectable what's fast I mean, 92 is like league average now. We talked about that okay. league average. I mean, 91, 92 is literally like half the pitches are above and half the pitches are below. So this and, dude that's uh, that's like working him at the moment, getting him, you know, working the various mechanics, the differences between uh, throwing a, a football and a baseball is saying, you know, once he gets a consistent throwing program, an arm care routine. Did you have a good yeah. arm care routine back in the I day? I did. I did. did. Yeah, really good. Okay. Yeah. Um, thinks Long he can get toss. the ninety-five. Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. I think I think it's also yeah. I mean, I think if you do work hard at it, there are better uh, technology and research is a lot better now than it was ten, fifteen years ago. And it was way, it was way better ten to fifteen years ago than it was the previous ten to fifteen years. So like I was when I was training, I was starting to train. You know. We're at the forefront of um, velocity building and arm care routines and all that stuff. So that stuff's been evolving pretty well over the last 10, 15 years. Um, who, uh, who's training him, by the way? Did you get a, a name at all? Uh, Kulik? I, I don't have a first name. Let me find a first name. Because there, there are some, some programs out there I've that are I've also no idea if this guy is... Really uh, good. Is, if that's how you pronounce that guy's name. Yeah. Ryan Kulik. Huh. K-U-L-I-K. No, I don't know. I don't know. So, I don't know. We'll see. Obviously, there's way more to pitching than just the fastball as well. You're going to have off-speed stuff. So, that's you know, even if he does hit 95, whatever. So, my final take is... This guy is he... apparently a coach at NCAA Division Three Rutgers Camden and a trainer at All-Pro Baseball Academy in Williamstown. Hmm. Maybe he could have gotten a better trainer. <laughs> no, I know nothing about him. I don't know anything about that guy. So I was a good pitching coach back in the day. Anyway, okay. will he get a shot in the minors? I think it depends on how many spots there are. Like if he does end up hitting 93, 94, 95, okay, you you get a shot. You're going to be in rookie ball and work your way up as an as as an old dude, right? But at some point, it's like you got so a lot these, of you got a lot of layers. Minors, yeah, that's so just the minors. I don't think he's going to make to the majors. Okay, no. our shot at making the majors is like minimal. Very minimal. Yeah. Put put me on a Tim Tebow scale. On, on the scale of Tim Tebow, where are we? I think it's better than Tebow because pitching ninety five is ninety five, no matter what. Whereas hitting just takes 
it's just I don't know. You just have to be so good, so consistent. Um, it, with a pitcher, you just have to like get hot for a couple months, and like you can, you know, I, I got hot for I, I almost made it to the bigs by getting hot for a couple months. <laughs> but, so, but you think he has a better shot at so better or worse shot of making it to the majors than he had of succeeding as an NFL starting quarterback? Better. He's got better. a better shot. Yeah, better but, or worse shot of making it to the majors than he had of succeeding as an AAF quarterback. Same. <laughs> same. Okay. All right. All right. Is that fair? You got a good scale there. Yeah. 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 Now, now I'm, I got a landscape going. I know where we are. That's sight unseen. All I, I've just heard that he's sure. that he's thrown ninety two. I have no idea. He's also uh, got a really ropey looking goatee beard growing at the moment, which I noticed that. I don't yeah. know that that helps. It's a bit of like midlife crisis. Kind of looks like me in 05 or so. so. You had some special degrees of facial hair during your baseball career. Agreed. Well, a lot of it was limited by the by the minor league rules. Right, but the, you took that in, I think, the opposite direction to which I think a normal person would. Hey, when you suggest a neatly trimmed mustache, uh, that's what mm. I'm going to give to you. That's what you get. All right, let's get into it. The best players... In the NFL, we'll go position by position. Are we going to knock out the entire offense today, or are we splitting this thing? Is this a split pod? I know. I think let's get through the whole thing. All right. Best players by position. Let's start at quarterback. He was number two on the PFF 50. I think we all agree Patrick Mahomes is the guy right now and going forward at quarterback. I think a better question would be people talked for a while about the post Brady, Breeze, Peyton, Rodgers, Roethlisberger, Rivers, all those guys, all those guys getting old, right? All those guys who are 38-plus or whatever they are now. After those guys are gone, who will be the torchbearer in the NFL? Patrick Mahomes has come on these last couple years, but who's going to be with him now over the next five or ten years? Well, so it's interesting, right? It, It is Mahomes, but I think there's two things. One, I think it's closer between him and Russell Wilson than people assume it is. Um, and two, the other question is, can L- Lamar Jackson join them? And, you know, does he have another year like he had last season where he was, you know, unanimous MVP? And what what does his 2020 look like? And how much longer does he need to be at this kind of level to be in that conversation? The Russell Wilson thing is really interesting because I honestly think you can make the case that right now he's playing at the same level as Patrick Mahomes is. It may not look quite as spectacular because, you know, he doesn't do as many no-look passes or, you know, he doesn't have as many sort of utterly absurd things we've just never seen before that I think is, it's a significant part of Patrick Mahomes' legend, you know, that's building up at the moment is the no-look pass, the kind of utterly crazy, you, you need those in your highlight reel in order to sort of build up this legacy. So I'm doing right. this... You know, I'm working the next of our podcast series things. I'm working on this Joe Montana versus Steve Young thing at the moment. And one of the things that jumps out about you go through this Joe Montana thing, Josh Hermsmeyer just wrote this piece for 538 that was basically which quarterback was better, Joe Montana or Steve Young. And Steve Young's stats are all better. Now, you know, we know that stats can be manipulated a little bit. And I sent you that story about how his first touchdown pass for a 49 as a 49er was basically a mistake you know he overthrew right. the tight end and accidentally hit jerry rice streaking in behind them for a 40 something yard touchdown like those are the kind of things that can warp a, st- uh, a stat line but the other thing is that whatever joe montana stat line was his career was almost punctuated by these signature 
insane comebacks, like right from the start. So in college, you've got this game against Air Force that he leads this big comeback in while he's still buried on the Notre Dame depth chart and isn't a starter yet. Then you get this, the chicken soup bowl where he's like dying of hypothermia in the the locker room and they keep wheeling him back out every now and again, (laughs) executes this comeback. Then I think year two, when he's in the NFL, he leads this absurd comeback against the Saints. They're like 30 points down. He brings them back, win it in overtime. Then you've got the catch, the Cowboys game. You've got the the first Super Bowl. You've got the Bengals, the second Bengals Super Bowl. It's just this series of like game after game after game. There's a crazy Montana comeback somewhere along the line. And whether or not on a sort of down-to-down basis he was better than Steve Young, he almost built up this legacy that to a, at some point becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Whether or not it was like a real thing or not, everybody that was playing with him believed in it. So you get these guys like Ronnie Lott who are 100% convinced that doesn't matter that we're 25 points down. We've got Joe Montana, and at some point he's going to bring us back. And that's almost like it is with Mahomes. It's like you need these sort of crazy, insane plays that only he can do that build up this myth and this legend, and at some point it becomes sort of self-fulfilling. Russell Wilson, I don't know, necessarily has those, so we see like a difference between the two. Uh We've talked a little bit off air about the young Montana and, and Josh's article, like that comparison. So from a quarterback play, right? Like we're not supposed to do this at PFF, right? Every play matters. Everybody, every play counts. We grade all of it. Um, we add it up at the end and, and, you know, here's your grade. But we also do all of this inherently knowing we're not capturing 100% of performance. And I think we all acknowledge and anybody who's, you know, done just, you know, putting numbers to performance or analytics or however you want to position it always acknowledges that like other things exist, right? That maybe you're not capturing. So where do you stand as far as say in a Montana young debate in a Brady Manning debate back through the years, all of that stuff, right? Do you think the quarter, do you think there is something to um, a little bit beyond the numbers, whether it's the ability to always step up uh, at the right situation winning in all situations and that's the one other piece of the of quarterback play that i'll say game situation is different right there's a, you play the game differently than uh, when you're up 10 versus when you're down 10 versus a tie game fourth quarter versus first quarter all of that stuff changes and it's very much in the quarterback's hands how you play the game in all of those situations so all that said where do you stand on say Montana and Brady have a, a they're they're legends when it comes to clutchiness. Mahomes, I don't know, like he has that nice fourth quarter comeback in the Super Bowl, and I don't know if that's so much legend as, as much as it's like, hey, Patrick Mahomes is awesome, like he'll eventually he'll get you. Where do you stand with those guys versus say Steve Young, Peyton Manning, even Drew Brees, who's been good in those situations but doesn't necessarily have the track record in the playoffs as like Brady and Montana. So the best case study for this, I think, is Eli Manning versus Phillip Rivers. Because I think Phillip Rivers was objectively a better quarterback for almost the entirety of their careers. But Eli Manning had two genuinely significant Super Bowl runs in which he was a vital component of winning those games. So the 2011 season in particular, like he was the reason they got there and then won. The 07 season... He at least, I mean, he was a big part of the Super Bowl win, even if that team was more defense-driven 
than uh, than Eli driven for like an extended period of time. But the bottom line is he has like two real signature times where he stood up and dragged that team further than it should have gone. Philip Rivers, if anything, has consistently gone in the other direction. So when the time has been biggest, most critical for him to stand up and be counted, he hasn't. And I, I think there's something there's that makes it a debate. Like, th- like this idea of is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer or not? I keep coming back to, I don't honestly know. I think there's a real case that you can put him in the Hall of Fame based on those two postseason runs. But you have to acknowledge that that's basically what you're basing it on. Like, Otherwise, his career is less good than Philip Rivers. Um, so I well, think by that's the way, kind I of where you, you end up. You have to use the same reasoning the other way with Philip Rivers, right? Is say like, is he a Hall of Fame quarterback? And I, I, I honestly think like statistically, yeah, Rivers is outstanding, like throw for throw and all that stuff. But I, I usually come back to like, were you a top five quarterback for an extended period of time? You know, were you a hypothetical top five in your era? And Philip Rivers was like a couple times. Right? right, like Philip Rivers should be a fringe Hall of Famer as well. A lot of people think he's a slam dunk and don't think Eli is. I think it. I do think ultimately it is going to be pretty close between the two because yeah, I think the postseason stuff does matter at least to a point. So when you translate that to a Montana versus Young debate, it's like whatever whatever the numbers say about Steve Young was clearly a more efficient quarterback, sort of down to down over their careers, but clearly. Montana had more of that ability to turn it on at clutch situations and, and show up at the biggest times. It took Young a while to get like get the monkey off his back that was the big you know, thing. When he finally won that Super Bowl and they, they waxed the Chargers, it was that whole, hey, take that monkey off my back thing. Like It took right. him a while to get there. Now, you can make the case that, hey, the Dallas Cowboys emerged, you know, that 90s dynasty, and it became harder to get those Super Bowl wins than, than it was for Montana and the earlier 49ers. But I think there's something to this idea that, however, you know, Montana wasn't necessarily the most dominant quarterback every single game, but he had built up this legend that everybody on the team believed that he was capable of winning those games, which I think had to have some effect on their ability late in those games. Like, not Montana's ability. Like, the rest of the team didn't bail on a game when they were 21 points down in the you know the fourth quarter I, I always thought that I always think that there's like at least a little bit something to it and again the example I've, I used a little bit a few shows ago was on like Brady uh, Roethlisberger and Russell Wilson right like those guys all came into defensive minded teams that won a lot of football games early on and like if we were if we had Twitter back in 2001 two, three, when Brady first entered the league would be like oh look at this game manager look at this guy who's right. riding his defense and stuff like that but at the same time he was making the comebacks like when he needed to make plays he was making them like he's had that again since college just like Montana had Roethlisberger even had a little bit of that and Russell Wilson we have the actual grades on him even though he didn't have to pass as much as other guys around the league when he did he was really good at it right 2012 and 13 and 14 early in his career so I've always thought that there is at least something to that. Now, that's not to say this isn't like believing in QB wins or anything like that, but I think you can see even early that there are certain quarterbacks who can adjust their game. And it's like, hey, if I have to throw 50 times, I'm doing it. If I have to, uh, you know, take care of the ball and throw the ball 25 times, I'm doing it, even though it seems easier. I think Brady's always had that. I think you could probably look at Roethlisberger and say, okay, there was something there. And then all of those guys eventually took that step to become the guy. 
for their team and they continued to win and then like oh by the way the numbers piled up and all like the 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 numbers that you use to judge quarterbacks and how well they're playing they started to to match the early perception of them winning um the one other brady centric thing i'll say too is i think when you look at his record take win-loss record out of it but when you put it into situations fourth quarter comeback opportunities when his defense gives up a lot of points whatever it might be when he has to throw the ball 50 times always comes out on top like dwarfs the rest of nfl history so for certain guys i do think there's something to your ability to adjust your uh, how you play the game based on the situation that's part of playing quarterback not just putting up stats yeah i mean there was that curve that i can't remember who it was but somebody was creating that had yeah. yeah that had um you know, quarterback or win percentage in the game versus quarterback aggression or whatever it was. And Manning and Brady basically had this perfect curve exactly the way it should be. The the more secure the game is, the more you should dial down your aggression, the more um the more in trouble in the game you are, the more the aggression dials up. And they have like this perfect curve that exactly matches what it should look like. And clearly it was a sort of intuitive thing. Like that nobody had that curve when they were doing this thing, particularly not like in the early two thousands. And yet those guys were dead on. But so when you look at the the Mahomes versus Russell Wilson thing to me, um, like Mahomes has, again, his signature moment, right? Come back in the Super Bowl, big play, third and 15, a Tyree kill, wins the game. I've seen people say that Russell Wilson isn't clutch because of that Super Bowl loss, the interception to Malcolm Butler, right? And yet I, I, I do not blame Russell Wilson at all for that play. Not one percentage point when you look at what that play was that play is designed it's like blaming the quarterback for a an interception on a slant where the receiver doesn't cross the cornerback's face right that's on the receiver he has to get across his face it's part of the play design the quarterback has to assume that's happening on this play the quarterback has to assume that that slant is getting there and that the the second db is getting picked off by the top of the stack so I, he looks at it. it the, the read says it's open pre-snap. You cannot expect him to pull that down after the snap. He threw the ball exactly where it was supposed to go, and Butler just made a better play. Butler and uh, Brandon Browner. So with let's let's debate Russell Wilson just a little bit here. This is where this all started, right? If we say Mahomes is number one and Lamar, we want to see it one more year. Yeah, he was MVP, but you know he'll be in that conversation more than likely. With, uh, with Russell Wilson, the majority of his career was very good, right? And again, um, the world is very driven by what's the last thing I saw. Not even six months ago, like three seconds ago, right? So everybody, I, I can't even believe that people are talking about right now. Can you believe Russell Wilson's never gotten a, a vote for MVP? Like, if you said that a, a year ago, would anybody be surprised? Like, which year should Russell Wilson have gotten an MVP vote prior to 2019? Like, that was the first year where he was truly top two, top three quarterback. So he's been very, very good. Consistently a top five to top eight guy for the majority of his career. Has he taken that next step forward? When we come to the clutch component, I mean, I don't think there's even a debate. Wilson's had years where his fourth quarters were just off the charts incredible. Like, he has the it factor as far as the fourth quarter goes. I think the bigger question is, why doesn't his team trust him quarters one one through three, right? Why don't they trust him to throw the ball 40 times per game? Because if I had Russell Wilson, I think I would do that. Um, and are that we've discussed this many times before too. Is it because, you know, when they have unleashed him a little bit 
it's a little uncomfortable. There's more second and nines and second and tens, or second and tens really, than you would normally have if than if you're running the ball and now it's second and eight or second and seven, right? Um, have you did you end up digging into that a little bit as far as how Wilson does with more pass attempts and yeah. where that lands? So over his career, he's worse than the best quarterbacks in the like. He's worse than the Brady's, the Mannings, the Breezes. Um, he's not worse than average. Like league wide, he's better than average, but you know we're not measuring him against average, right? We're measuring him against the Bradys and the Breezes and all those kind of guys, right? Um, but if you assume so, his career, as you say, is like very, very, very good, and then jumps the last two years. In the last two years, he's been as good as any quarterback in the NFL. So if you limit it to the last two years, he's up with Breeze, Brady, and Rogers, the best quarterbacks that we've seen. But the sample size starts getting really small at that point. Like we're talking about twelve games or something at that point where he's had. What'd you use for a cutoff? Okay, I use forty plus and I use fifty plus. So one point, there's there's hardly any fifty plus, but forty plus. I think over the last two years he's got like twelve of those games or something. But the number, like you're talking about one game here or there, takes him from being in that realm to being over here. So it's 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 iffy. But he does jump back to where everybody else is if you say that, all right, his game has genuinely gone to a different place. I, so, I, yeah, I looked into this, and I came away like – I came away unsure as to what the answer is, right? We, the Seahawks clearly believe that, hey, we overall have reduced his – they're doing what, Aaron, what the – they've done what the Packers seem to want to do with Aaron Rodgers, which is we're going to take – more of the burden off his shoulders, and overall that will allow him to be better and more efficient on a down-to-down basis. Um, And it's difficult to argue with the idea that it's worked for the Seahawks because they've gone more run-heavy, taken the ball out of his hands, and he's had the best two seasons of his career. On the other hand, it's it's cause or effect, right? It's hard to know which which – it's hard to know whether it was – um, what caused him to jump up, or if they've just missed out on, they've left meat on the bone by doing that and not taking advantage of the fact that he's been playing better. I honestly don't know, and I don't think they do either. They just, they think that in reducing his workload, they've gotten his best seasons out of him. We're looking at that saying, well, I don't know if that's a cause for that, or if he's just playing better and you've taken the ball out of his hands more. I'll acknowledge there's a possibility that that, that is the case, right? When you describe, so if you just, if you play word association with quarterbacks and you say Russell Wilson, like what's the best thing about Russell Wilson? You'd say deep ball, right? Like throwing the ball down the field. If you said Brady or Breeze, you'd say like decision-making slash accuracy, right? Say accuracy for Breeze, Brady would be decision-making, short and intermediate game, right? Um, So when you do take the ball out of Wilson's hands and you're a little bit more play play action centric and all that stuff, you are playing to his strengths. So just because Wilson isn't known as a Brady, Breeze, Manning, even Roethlisberger, they've had a lot of games where Roethlisberger, hey, just go throw the ball 20 out of the first 25 plays, right? That's how I look at this, right? There's a, there's only a handful of quarterbacks, I think, in history who, when game planning, you're just like, oh, if I have to call passes on 28 out of my first 30 plays, like I'm okay with that because I trust putting the ball in his hands to make good decision after good decision quick game intermediate he's going to do it all he's going to spread the ball around make good decisions take a five yard pass when it when it's there take the shot down the field when it's there all those other guys have done it now when wilson's done wilson's not known for it and at times 
you do have games where it's like, why didn't you just take that five-yard pass? Why didn't you just make that good read? Where is this boneheaded decision coming from? He's cut down on those in recent years, but again, is that because he's protected and not having to make 40 or 45 of those decisions over and over and over again? I think it's like a legitimate debate, and it's not as simple as, this guy's awesome, therefore throw the ball 25% more of the time. It's not that simple, but I would rather take that shot than handing it off to Chris Carson or Rashad Penny or whoever else is back there over and over again. And I think the fact that it is, it's a discussion is the reason that he's separate from Patrick Mahomes. I think on a play-by-play basis, they're honestly at the same level, but Mahomes is the guy that's being leaned on to, to do that you know, as many times as they need him to, whereas the Seahawks, whether they're right or they're wrong, are trying to take the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands more than the Chiefs are with Mahomes. So at that point, even even if they're wrong, the fact that it's now the fact that it's an unanswered question, I think, has to separate him from Mahomes. We've always used this like mythical top eight, right? Like here are the top eight. It's not really mythical. I think again, I've used this point. But if you look at all of the best PFF passing seasons back to 2006, 90 percent of them come from nine guys. Right. There are at any given time, there's like this top eight in the league that have been separate from the rest. What are your thoughts on post Brady, Breeze, Rogers, and maybe we're already kind of post those guys, but like when they're like legitimately out of the equation, um, Roethlisberger, Rivers, do you think we have enough quarterbacks to say, here's this top eight, right? Here is this distinct group of eight guys, 10 guys. Is it only going to be six? Like, how many guys will be that next top tier in the future? We have Mahomes, Russell Wilson, say Lamar Jackson. Does Joe Burrow end up in that mix? Does Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields end up in that mix? Is that is Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, are those guys in that mix, or are they too volatile year to year to even trust them? Or is just the rest of the league play is going to drop just a little bit when those old guys move on? That all of a sudden, Dak's a top eight guy. Wentz is a top eight guy pretty consistently year in, year out. I think it depends how this last couple of years where the quarterbacks pan out. I mean, obviously, we've got Wilson, we've got Mahomes, we've got in, uh, presumably Lamar. I think Deshaun Watson is very close from being in that group. Um, I think he's where Russell Wilson was a few years ago in terms of being most of the way there and just not quite, um, hasn't eliminated the inconsistencies. But then... Like what happens with this next, this last few years of quarterbacks? Um, this year, obviously Joe Burrow, but Kyla Murray seems like a guy that could get there pretty quickly. Does Baker Mayfield bounce back? Do Sam Darnold and you know Josh Allen develop into that player? They've got the tool set to do it. Um, I think there's just a huge amount of unknowns about the last few years worth of drafted quarterbacks. But those are the ones I think that need to show that they can make that step. Otherwise, you are lowering the level to the point where guys like Dak is in there every year yeah it's a good debate um I'm I'm all, I've always been fascinated to see what would happen when the uh old regime does move on I think we're starting to see that unfold just a little bit but uh, we're supposed to be going through all the positions but it's a great quarterback discussion including a little bit of that Montana young history um so Mahomes were clearly saying is the top quarterback but there are some names to discuss that will be up there with him year in year out let's move over to running back and based off our list, we're saying Christian McCaffrey. Who's battling McCaffrey at the top at running back? And does he have to be at that level of pass game weapon to even be considered in today's NFL? 
So I was I tried to kind of sketch this out in real time during a radio hit last week where I was like the problem with evaluating running backs now is that we've essentially demonstrated that it is so determined by the environment that they are within um, that it almost becomes like a futile exercise, right? Because you can have a, so Zeke Elliott, you have Zeke Elliott, and as long as the Cowboys have a top offensive line and the passing game functions, Elliott will be like at the top couple of places in terms of um, you know rushing yards, and it looks like an All Pro, like the Todd Gurley effect, right? When everything around him is at All Pro level, Todd Gurley looks like an MVP candidate, and as soon as all that leaves. He's no longer an MVP candidate, and it's like, what's wrong with Todd Gurley? Um, and the same thing, I don't know that any running back is uh, is immune to that level of decline once the situation around him deteriorates, at which point, how do you even evaluate who good running backs are? Like, if the whole thing is determined on the situation around them being good, how do you independently say, well, this guy is is the best running back in the league because he's, what, the most immune from that level of decline. Like, if that's the criteria, then you can look at a guy like Christian McCaffrey and say, all right, he's had incredible production despite everything around him being kind of crappy. Maybe Saquon Barkley, when he's healthy, though he's battled injuries. Nick Chubb has been incredible on the ground despite pretty crappy blocking. I just, you know, I was coming to the realization that I honestly don't know that it's possible to, like, independently evaluate running backs given how much we know about how dependent they are on their situations. There's another thing at play, too, and, you know, for our, you know, players that, uh, fantasy players that listen to us as well. I mean, so much of fantasy analysis, obviously, isn't how good is the player. It's it's where where is opportunities coming from. So uh, this is one of those fallacies that I've seen even NFL personnel look back upon. It's like, what do you mean running backs don't matter? Let's go back and look at all of the first round running backs over the years. And you go back and look at the first round running backs and it's like, look at this. This is where you get all your thousand yard guys. This is where you get all your productive guys. But that's the self-fulfilling prophecy of if you draft a guy in the first round, if you draft Zeke Elliott at number four overall, that dude's getting carries. He's going to get carries. He's going to get his 20 to 25 carries per game, whether they're valuable carries, efficient carries or not. So that's part of the issue as well, right? Like if, if Jordan Howard was a first-round pick and he was getting 20 carries a game, would he, you know, behind the Dallas offensive line, would he be averaging four and a half yards a pop? I, yeah. I, Jordan Howard, just a name I'm picking out, but, like, I think he would be. I think he'd be uh, fantastic there, right? Um, yeah. There are certain situations, right? Like Rashad Penny's been soured on in, uh, in Seattle. Chris Carson's outplayed him, and, you know, their roles have switched. But for the most part, like when you draft that Leonard Fournette, you draft Zeke Elliott, you draft a guy like you're feeding that guy, and he's going to put up counting stats, and it's going to look productive. So that's part of like situation too. It's not just are you behind this good offensive line? Are you getting fed the ball? But like, I mean, are you getting fed the ball because you happen to be a top guy? And it's not so the running backs being dependent thing is not a hundred percent. You know, it's not a uh, a complete direct correlation, but it's really tight. Um, yeah. So, and you see it more often manifest itself than you do players buck that trend. So one good example recently is Dalvin Cook, right? Dalvin Cook wants to hold out, wants more money. So you start looking, okay, what happens when Dalvin Cook's off the field and Alexander Madison comes in instead? And the answer is nothing. It's the same, right? Even though... I think pretty much everybody out there would objectively agree that Dalvin Cook is a superior talent 
to Alexander Madison, it's very hard to find any data that says the Vikings have different levels of success rushing the football when they hand it to one guy versus the other, at which point the talent differential between the two doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything. So I think if you're trying to to isolate running backs and say, all right, if you're the best running back in the league, what do you need to have? I think at the very minimum, you need to be you need to add value in different areas to just running the ball because we know running the ball is so insanely dependent on uh, everything else. So you you need to have some kind of factor in the passing game, and that's why I think McCaffrey starts to distance himself at the top. I think Nick Chubb right now might be the best ball carrier in the NFL. That's a good way of putting it, by the way. I don't think he's a bad receiver, but he's not McCaffrey, right? And not only that, but he's sort of landed himself in a situation where the team already has plus receivers. They've had Duke Johnson. They've had Kareem Hunt now. So he's not even going to get the opportunity to show that he can be anything more than that because they're, I mean, they're going to keep Kareem Hunt as a bigger factor on third downs because he's a, you know, he's a better route runner. He's a better uh, receiving back so it's not that Chubb sucks at that, but he's inherently going to have less of an opportunity than, than these other guys, whereas McCaffrey is the best receiving back in the NFL, or certainly one of them, Austin Eckler, I guess you could make a case. But McCaffrey, I think, genuinely has the ability to play slot receiver in the NFL. There aren't that many players that could do that. So he's, I think, has to be the front runner. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about receiving running backs, there are two different things at play, right? It's like, do you catch the ball smoothly and efficiently and do something with it out of the backfield versus, like, dictating matchups? That's where I think Saquon and, I mean, McCaffrey absolutely separates himself because if you wanted to create a game plan or have him, you know, we've talked about this a lot too, but, like, if he's, like, the number three option in your game plan and it's like, this dude is going to have a slow linebacker on him the entire game, you could pull out a productive game there, and I think that's a great way to, uh, you know, run an offense in the NFL. I don't, you, I don't think you go into the season saying, man, we got to get McCaffrey 100 catches because that's probably not going to be good for you. But if there's a game where he's going to get targeted 15 times because of a mismatch and they're efficient, McCaffrey can do that. Saquon Barkley can do that. I don't think Nick Chubb or Dalvin, as much as I love Dalvin Cook, Cook's not that guy necessarily. Uh, Chubb's not necessarily that guy. Zeke Elliott's not really that guy either, the guy that you're going to line up all over the field and, create mismatches so I like the concept of Chubb as the best ball carrier I look at Saquon and say man if that run blocking comes together there's nobody I'd rather have with the ball in their hands behind a good run blocking line than Saquon Barkley because I think he's got the best big play potential between his ability to break tackles and then uh, run away from defenders so um, there will be a year where Barkley averages like 5.3 yards per carry or something ridiculous because uh, the run blocking comes together and um, I don't know what he averaged his first year, but he just had so many negative runs. He's not great at what Nick Chubb is really good at, which is like, hey, here's this negative two-yard run that you just turned into four. Barkley's more likely to have those negative runs. Uh, we need to mention Derrick Henry, otherwise people will complain that we didn't. Um, so Derrick Henry, I think, is a great example of how dependent the running back stuff is, right? It's not that Derrick Henry is bad, but Derrick Henry was 11th in the league in rushing before they made a change at quarterback inserted a guy who played like the best quarterback in the NFL over the course of the season, suddenly Derrick Henry becomes the rushing champion. Um, also, the Titans offensive line massively incre- improved over the season. Like Even including the first six weeks of the season, the Titans ended the year as the sixth best rush, uh, run-blocking offensive line in the NFL. The Browns with Chubb were 24th. 
and yet those guys basically had the same season in terms of like yards for carry. I think it was 5.1 for Henry, 5 for Chubb. The other thing that uh, that people don't factor in is that like situation and field position dictates your yards per carry, right? A if lot. you get a ton of yeah, yeah and yeah. and your touchdowns. Your touchdowns is basically largely is a product of how many times you're fed the ball inside the 5-yard line. Yep. So, if you take out any carry that was within the opponent's 10-yard uh, line, the <laughs> the yards per carry jumps, right? Chubb jumps up to 5.6, Henry goes to 5.3. So, they flip um because Chubb got a whole bunch more short yardage work. So, I, I think generally like Henry I don't think he's a bad player. But Henry last season became the rushing champion largely because everything around him changed. Over the first six weeks of the season, he was just another guy. Yeah, I, so I think the thing about um, the thing about Henry, too, like I want to give him proper credit, too, right? Because even though the numbers say, yeah, the line is going to dictate rushing stats uh, more often than not over time, obviously there are certain instances where that's not the case. You and I have graded games for years where, I mean, it's awesome actually to see here's this terrible run blocking effort where this running back still ended up getting 88 yards. And it was like this incredible effort just to go for 88 yards on, say, 20 carries. And it's just, it looks like a normal stat line. But Derrick Henry had that was 67 yard run against Baltimore in the divisional round where Earl Thomas is unblocked. It should have been like a two yard gain or whatever it was. And Derrick Henry shrugs that off and then goes and that was a huge turning point for the titans like henry did have a, a number of those big runs but i would say i would equate that to completely we talked about mahomes and his special plays completely judging a quarterback by like two spectacular big time throws and then projecting it out for well, yeah it's right? not just that it's a really difficult concept to wrap your head around because we all watch these games you say you, you see plays where it's like well that wasn't the blocking like the running back did all kinds of stuff after after he got the ball in his hands there. Therefore, your therefore your data is bullshit, right? But the point yeah. is that I think the the point with all this stuff is not that running backs suck. It's not that they're a bad player. It's that run, every running back once they hit the NFL is at a certain level of talent, and they're all really good because you know for certainly for years like running back was almost the marquee position. It's where everybody wanted to play. It's where you got a lot of the best athletes because there was that perception that they were the ones driving all this uh, scoring. And lower down, they are. Like, running backs in high school are the reason your team is really successful. In college, it's a big part of it as well. In the NFL, it's less so. But the point is, it doesn't need to be, because that's sort of driving the talent into this position. Then the idea is, so now you have to compare it with, okay, with a certain level of blocking, what would your average NFL running back achieve? Now, the average NFL running back would still achieve a bunch of those plays where they break three tackles, go for 25 yards, when it should have been like a two-yard gain. So that's your baseline, right? It's, it's, your baseline is being compared against other backs that would also do something like that. And therefore, the difference is like what the blocking will achieve on, a, on an overall high-level um, sort of big number sample size. And that's when it starts to tilt that actually the most important differentiator is the quality of blocking, not the difference between a Derrick Henry and a Chris Carson or a Derrick Henry and, a, you know, insert random generic running Matt back. Asiata. Well, maybe maybe that. Maybe, maybe that that's would, significant maybe That would have enough. a bigger difference. But the point is, like, the bigger, like, the, the difference between the rushing champion and the guy that ranked, you know, 15th in the NFL 
is way more dependent on the quality of blocking than it is the yeah. difference in talent between the rushing champion and the 15th running back in the NFL, which, by I, the I way, this year was Saquon Barkley. So that kind 15th. of proves the point, right? There you go. Now, okay, he was injured and stuff, but whatever. So I, the interesting thing about all this is this doesn't necessarily apply. The, uh, the running back concept doesn't apply to all levels of football, right? When you right. go to the college level, you will have stuff like Travis Etienne, Sam. Stop it who ha- was the second most valuable player on Clemson. Because running backs in college will average six, seven, sometimes eight yards per carry, like Larry Johnson did at Penn State back in the day, rushing for 2,000 yards. When you rush for that many yards per carry, and you're the one uh, largely doing it, you're extremely valuable. So, so what happens in football is, in high school, running backs can dominate. In college, they can still kind of dominate, just a little bit less. But by the NFL, the level of talent is just so tight, whether it's between running back to running back or just run defense to run defense, it's so tight that you can't make as big of a difference. We're going to make it through both sides of the ball here, Sam. Have you uh, checked in on Larry Johnson recently, by the way? I have not. Oh, Guy wait. Is, like, is he doing some... Uh, what's he doing? I think I... He's like a 24-carat lunatic. He's like full conspiracy theorist, like... Sight- daughter nut job to be honest nice i think i did yeah i I think i did see that at some point yeah like he's blaming the illuminati for stuff you know that kind of that level of like you know off at the deep end come on don't turn away some of our listeners here sam the illuminati listeners hey they their downloads count too how how many i i don't know we (laughs) should Let us know. We don't have that level of uh, like analysis. Let us know the, how deep your the conspiracy theories run. I mean, right, let, Pete Carroll could be f- listening. He's in that boat, right? Pete Carroll's an Illuminati believer? No, more of a 9-11 truther, but isn't that connected? I, I don't know. I haven't dug into it too much. Um, so I forgot to even put it on the sheet because we never treat these people as humans, but fullback, oh, right? Gosh. The best fullback in the NFL – in terms of actual, like, traditional fullback is Anthony Sherman. In terms of modern-day receiving fullback, it's Kyle Juszczyk. Next. Beautiful. The juice check. All right, let's go to wide receiver. Julio Jones was the top receiver on our list. We didn't have that much debate. We always talked about yards per route and how efficient he is there. He wins at every level of the field. Uh, the Throughout the majority of Julio's career, I think he'd been battling Antonio Brown and a little bit of Calvin Johnson, right, for the top spot tail end of Andre Johnson, maybe. Uh, yeah. But those were the top guys. Am I missing any? Like, there was one year of Odell Beckham where it looked like he was going to join the mix because of how he won, which was doing everything. Odell Beckham hasn't lived up to that hype since his rookie year. Um, so I think with Antonio Brown moving on, with DeAndre Hopkins not being as complete as Julio, as scary as Julio, um, Michael Thomas is moving forward a little bit, but... Um. Yeah, I just uh, I think it's Julio. I think Julio is still the gold standard. I mean, you draw up sort of who's the best at all these various things. Julio is still, you know, either the best or right up there with the best in every single category. Um, I think every other receiver has at least one, maybe flaw is a harsh word, but one questionable facet of his game, even if it's like the Russell Wilson thing where it's not even a negative, it's a question mark. So like Michael Thomas's lack of use is a deep threat, right? It's not that he can't do that. It's just that they don't ask him to, at which point it's something 
we don't really know compared with Julio Jones where it's obvious. Um, you know, Antonio Brown had one legal case resolved, so he's like one step closer to being back in the league, but he's still got a way to go. Um, New Hopkins has been as dominant as any receiver, but ulti- like at some point it feels like the uh, the relative lack of, you know, plus athleticism compared to the Julio Jones is going to be more of a problem. Like I know he's been, just consistently been trucking despite that, but at some point, like if you're if you're giving these two guys an abstract and you're told, right, they're both incredible at all these things, but one guy runs a 4-3 and the other guy doesn't, I'm going to take the guy with the 4-3. You're comparing who now? Who was the last comparison? Julio and Nuke. And Nuke, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I give Nuke a ton of credit, again, for the quarterback play that he's dealt with, um, from Brandon Whedon to, you know, really bad Brock Osweiler, all those guys, and he's still found a way to produce. But you know, wide receiver is a uh, very much a usage pattern type of position, right? And it's like, all right, it comes down to if you give me this guy, which is different. We'll get into the offensive line in a second. Like, if you give me the offensive line, I'm going to ask him to block. If you give me this wide receiver – and it could be Julio, it could be Nuke, it could be Michael Thomas. I can use him any way that I want. Julio Jones gives me the best range of options and the best, most efficient range of outcomes because of his ability uh, down the field, intermediate, after the catch, everything that he does. Catches the ball efficiently. People complain about his touchdowns, but you know, just like rushing touchdowns, they're usually opportunity-driven, even though he had that right. one year where they kept trying to feed him. Um I, also I think generally, they just needed to be more creative with that. I also, with the nuke thing, I generally don't love the idea of uh, forcing a quarterback to target a guy that's not open. That doesn't separate uh, as much as other guys, yeah. right? So, you know, even if a guy is a consistent uh, talent in terms of winning contested catches, I don't think it's a good thing for a quarterback to get in his brain that I should be feeding this guy the ball even when he isn't open. So it's it's a little bit like... Um, you know, Matthew Stafford, when he had Calvin Johnson versus when he didn't. The idea that, like, yeah. I should, when in doubt, just sling the ball in this guy's direction, I don't think is a good thing for quarterback's overall development. I think he's better served to, A, see a good picture, like a, a, a legitimate picture when this receiver is. So you look up, Julio is open, so he gets the ball. I think that is a better thing than just defaulting to slinging a, the ball in a guy's direction. Um, you can have too much trust in guys. Yeah, but that's right? what I mean. So whether it's whether it's because he's New Hopkins and you know he's always going to win contested catches, or whether it's because it's Calvin Johnson and that's just where we go with the ball, like whatever reason, I think when you're being um, when you're being led into throwing the ball, giving a guy targets that he hasn't necessarily earned with his route running, I think is not a good thing for a quarterback generally. So whether that's Nuke's fault or not, I don't love that that is a potential side effect of his play. I don't want to completely repeat everything. We do repeat ourselves. I know I do it all the time. Repeat ourselves a lot on here, but we have also discussed, if we were starting a team, is there a little legitimate debate with Tyreek Hill, off-field stuff aside, just focusing yeah. on the actual football play and what you could do with him as a football player, the deep threat, the gimmick stuff, the fact that the Patriots legitimately double-teamed him 15 times in a game before there might not be a player in the NFL that takes as much focus of the defense as Tyree kill. And the fact that he even made Alex Smith throw the ball down the field because he was a, mm-hmm. you know, that good of a deep threat, I think says a lot about his ability to elevate an offense. 
Yeah, no, I think you could make a case that Tyree. I don't. Yeah, I, I think Julio Jones is still the gold standard. But if you were starting a team from scratch and had to pick one wide receiver, I, there's a pretty good chance I think I would take Tyree Hill. All right, let's move on to tight end. And I think you know, top two guys on our list was a George Kittle, and it was Kittle, and then Kelsey, right? Yep. Um, the difference has always been the run blocking, and even if we say the run blocking doesn't matter as much as what you do in the pass game, Kittle. Kittle's the closest thing to Gronk that we've seen, I think, as far as his after-the-catch ability and, and his ability to to win in, in various different ways. As great as Kelsey is, Kelsey's, I think, a little bit more athlete than overall pure power and speed and agility player like Kittle. Yeah, the question really is whether Kittle can back up what he did last year, which was a pretty insane season. Um, Kelsey has been you know, probably, probably the best receiving tight end in the NFL for a number of years. Um you could argue that he's a better receiver, pure receiver than Kittle is. You could argue he was better than Gronk for a lot of that period as well, or at least at his level. Um, you're right. The thing that differentiated them was blocking, and it's not the, uh, the Kelsey's a bad blocker. It's just that he's not a like he's not a dominant inline force the way those guys are. Yeah. Like Kittle and Gronk were able to go or match up on defensive ends, guys that outweigh them by 20 pounds, and they're also able to crush safeties or you know corners if, if a team sticks a corner on them like that video of uh of kittle driving some poor safety who's it robert alford maybe like into the end zone just burying the dude five yards like giggling as he did it like you can't put a guy like that on him or just get wrecked but he's also able to go up against everson griffin and beat him on an outside zone play you know that's what separates those guys from a kelsey who'll do okay but he's not going to dominate those guys yeah, given how good edge defenders are, how athletic, big, long, strong those guys are, you know, they just generally dominate tight ends, right? The mm-hmm. tight ends have really difficult blocking assignments in the NFL. Outside zone, inside zone, you see a lot of times the tight end is head up on an edge defender who is longer, more athletic, quicker, maybe not more athletic, but just better at block, like defeating blocks than he is at blocking, right? It's just really difficult. And you have tough angles and all that stuff. So most tight ends struggle against defensive ends in today's NFL because they're just, it's their secondary job. I mean, it's its just not what they're on the field to do. So when you do have a tight end that can run block, it, it is it is a huge weapon. So that would be uh, why George Kittle is the best tight end in the NFL. All right, let's go through the offensive line. Starting at left tackle, David Bakhtiari has been the best pass protector over the last four or five years. I think that's been pretty clear. Last year, though, Ronnie Stanley had the number one grade. He took a huge jump in his career for the Ravens. Uh, is is Stanley a better overall player? Is there a better all-around left tackle? Because Bakhtiari, if you just go through the last few years, number one pass blocker, like I said, for a wi- uh, by a wide margin, but he's only like number 40 as a run blocker. So with good, not great in the run game. Do you, is there a better, more all-around left tackle like a Ronnie Stanley that should be in the conversation. Yeah, I think they're similar, though, in terms of makeup. Like, I think Stanley will has always skewed as a better pass blocker than a run blocker as well. I don't know that he's going to be that much different to Bakhtiari overall. Um, like, And Bakhtiari had dramatically improved his run blocking grades over the years, and then last season took a little bit of a step back. So I think ultimately that's the style of left tackle you want in today's NFL anyway. You know, a guy that's a, a an absolute force as a pass blocker who if he struggles a little bit it's as a run blocker I'm okay with that um, and I think these two guys are stylistically very similar and 
I think just because of longevity, you kind of nod towards Bankiari. The other thing I think that's different is um, Ronnie Stanley is definitely helped by the offense that they run in Baltimore. Now, that's not to say he isn't good already, but it, it massively aids him. I don't know that it's... So you immediately think that Aaron Rodgers, well, he holds the ball longer than pretty much any quarterback in the NFL. I don't know that Rodgers hurts Bankiari, but he certainly doesn't help him. Like, what you what you lose in the fact that he holds the ball longer than most players, you probably gain back in the fact that a lot of teams don't rush him all out. They try and keep him in the pocket. It does it's even probably out, a wash. Yeah. yeah, I think it's probably a wash. But the point is, even if you say that that's a wash and he's somewhere in the middle, like Lamar's offense puts back or puts uh, Ronnie Stanley in maybe the most advantageous position of any tackle in the NFL. It's not just that he doesn't face that many pass rushing situations. You know, the Ravens run the ball more than any other offense in the NFL. But the threat of Lamar being able to run, the fact that even when they do, there's a lot of play action stuff, so it's not a true pass set. Like, it, you start, the sample sizes start getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then because you've reduced the sample size so much, even the true pass sets are almost like a surprise to the defense. So that guy is a half step behind where he should be anyway. So the whole thing just has this big knock-on effect of making the, the pass protector's jobs easier. But he's really good when he is in those situations. And remember, in our evaluation, you know, for the most part, we try to even that stuff off a little bit, right? That's why, like, uh, Trent Brown a couple years ago did not have a good pass-blocking grade for the Patriots because Brady was getting the ball, rid of the ball like crazy, uh, very quickly, Brown was losing his blocks, but they never became pressures. Like, we do balance that off as much as possible, but it's not perfect, right? If you do have a guy that's holding the ball 2.8, 2.9, 3 seconds on just straight dropbacks, like Aaron Rodgers does, like Deshaun Watson does, um, you are going to put a little bit more pressure on the offensive lineman. But to your point, you're also going to run into more, you know, mush rush situations where you're not necessarily trying. You're so worried about losing contain. So, um, I think Bakhtiari is the guy there at left tackle. Ronnie Stanley's making a move. Laramie Tunzel made a move a little bit last year. I don't think he's in their class, though. There's not enough of a track record. Uh, a guy like Tyron Smith, who I was just watching recently, he's just not between injuries and just – he's just not the same guy he was a few years ago. Uh, Teron Armstead, I think, could be in that conversation as well. Like There are some guys that are in the conversation, but I think Bakhtiari um, has become the gold standard pass blocker um, since Joe Thomas retired, for sure. Yeah, there's, what about, a lot of, there's a lot of tackles that I think are actually in the conversation, but for <clears throat> but for health, you know, the, for some reason, left tackle seems to be blighted more than usual, more than most positions with guys that are like incredible talents but can't stay healthy. So right. Armstead has missed a ton of time over his career. Tyron Smith has just always been banged up for, throughout his career. Those guys, I think, are definitely talent-wise up there, but can't seem to stay healthy and at their best because of that. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the high end of tackles in the NFL. We talk about there's a tackle problem in the NFL, but there's probably there's 10 to 15 teams that feel pretty good by about at least one of their tackles. So there's some talent in the NFL. On the right side, uh, Mitchell Schwartz coming off of one of the best postseasons we've ever seen, if not the best, especially for an offensive lineman. Um, and then Ryan Ramchak uh, starting his career. I just posted this as far as three-year grades go. First, uh, sorry, your first three years of your career, it's Joe Thomas, Jake Long, and Ryan Ramchek, guys that have played their first three years in the PFF era. Ramchek is right there, and he's been just fantastic. 
And then I think the other name would be Lane Johnson, who probably yeah. still belongs in that conversation as well. I think those the right tackle in the NFL right now is in a really good spot. Um, and those three guys, I think, are the best. Let's go to the interior. Left guard, Quentin Nelson. I think everybody agrees there. I think there's a legitimate discussion for Zach Martin, though. Like, you know, it's not like Martin will probably have some years where he's the top-graded guy, right? Oh, he's right left guard, guard. He's Zach right. Martin. Oh, shoot. I My fault. <laughs> It's again because I'm writing up all these offensive lines, and I made the statement the other day that I think Zach Martin is going to be battling Quentin Nelson as the best guard in the NFL for years to come. And then when you wrote this list down, I just threw Zach Martin's name next. My fault. I do know that Zach Martin (laughs) plays right guard, Um, but I think the battle for the best guard in the NFL over the next few years will be Quentin Nelson, Zach Martin, a right guard, and Brandon Brooks, a right guard. Um, yeah. I think at least those three guys are in the mix, but Quentin Nelson, as far as left guards go, I think um, he's already the top guy. I think he is, and I don't know that there's anyone that's really going to get close to where he is or he's going to be. Um, the next two guys in terms of grading last season were Joe Tooney, uh, Joel Batonio, who's one of the best pass-blocking guards in the NFL, but isn't the run blocker that Nelson is. So I, I just don't see an obvious challenger for Quentin Nelson at left guard anytime soon. Right guard, I would say Zach Martin because of his track record. Recent years, though, Brandon Brooks has absolutely yeah. made a move, right? It, I mean, it's I, I keep the story of Brandon Brooks last season is nuts, right? Achilles injuries do not – they're not easy injuries to come back from, even today. Um, and even when you come back from them, the first year you're back, you're normally not the player you were. It normally takes at least a season for you to get yourself – get your feet back under you, so to speak, if you tear an Achilles – before you see the same player again. Brandon Brooks recovered from a torn Achilles and then had a career year. And not just a career year, but was the best guard in the NFL last season. That is absurd. Like, that should not be possible. Um, like, <laughs> it's almost like Lance Armstrong levels of, hmm, that's a little interesting. Oh, really but, questioning him, huh? I'm, well, I'm just saying, that that's the level of absurdity that's at. I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything untoward. I'm just saying that is that level of ridiculous that he was able to do that one of the things i always find fascinating is i love looking at just like height and weight for a player and it just it paints a picture in your head right like this guy's got good size average size he's small whatever brandon brooks came into the league in 2012 he's 6'5 335 and historically when you have a guard over 330 the scouting reports scouts in general are like oh he's just a big a bruiser people mover gap scheme all this stuff. Like, he stepped into a zone-heavy scheme with the Texans. It's been a zone-heavy scheme with the Eagles. Like, the dude moves well, and he's not just a big, burly, bruising, gap-run blocker, right? I mean, the dude does it all. And so he was one of those guys that kind of, like, bucked the scouting reports, right? Like, here's this big guy who probably can't move. Like, people thought he was Mike Upati, who actually is that guy. Like, he's just going to, you know, down-block and sit on you and whatever. Brandon Brooks since entering the league. 97th percentile run blocking grade on zone runs, Sam. He's really, really good. Yeah. All the way around. There and then go. it's See, center. We caught up some time. We flew through the offensive line. Those poor guys. They need more love. Um, and then at center, we got Jason Kelsey over the last few years. Um, such a unique player because he's the opposite of Brandon Brooks. You're just like, here's this undersized dude who moves like a linebacker in space. But that has fit what the Eagles do offensively. They put him in space a lot, and he's really good. Yeah, he really is. Um, like, his ability to block on the move in that zone scheme is pretty insane. Like, the the agility he has. And honestly, like, he's 
he's such a small guy. Like when you see him compared with like regular, you know, offensive linemen, he's tiny. Um, and it just it means that he can move at this different rate and different level, and then he's still good enough to hold up against the sort of monster interior players that he has to play against. Is there anybody even competing with him at this point? Yeah. He's been our top guy over the last few years. I think center is kind of in flux at the moment in the NFL. I think, you know, Ryan Jensen, the Bucks signed to this best-paid center in the NFL thing, and at the time it kind of looked farcical because he had, you know, a few games where he was the best center in the NFL and then a few games where he was one of the worst centers in the NFL. But last season he played a lot more like the best than the worst. Um, Frank Ragnow, now that he's playing there for Detroit, I think is really kicking into how good he can be. He was a guy that we loved coming out. Um, Eric McCoy played really well right off the bat in New Orleans. If he takes another step forward, he could be cooking as one of the best centers in the NFL as well. Uh, Ryan Kelly for the Colts is good. I don't know if he's ever going to become a great center. And then Rodney Hudson is like the I was going to say Hudson, yeah. Rodney Hudson's data for pass blocking is is nuts, like legitimately ridiculous. He's allowed, I think, 55 pressures in an 11-year career. Um, there are sent like Matt Paradis last year allowed forty-seven, yeah. so just in one season. Um, and Hudson he's, allowed so, he's allowed eleven over the last three years. He allowed eleven in two thousand sixteen. Hudson, yeah, eleven in um, three years. And then, so he's definitely helped out like a little bit again by the offense, right? Derek Carr gets out of the, gets rid of the ball quickly. It's a fast passing offense, but. Again, he's one of those guys where even when you strip it all back and you look at the stuff that is legitimate, like one-on-one pass blocking thing, like our Ben Stockwell is going through our all blocking data at the moment, and when you start parsing out like one-on-one pass blocking stuff, again, like he's just on another level compared to any other player that's played center. So there we go. That's the offense. Best players at every position. We're going to get through the defense here. Yeah, yeah. This is because we we can. It's smaller. Because we're right. only doing one interior guy. Defensive interior. Who's the best player, Sam? Well, all right. So in, in defensive interior, we're going to do two because obviously the best player is Aaron Donald. And it's not close. The gap between Aaron Donald and the next best player at his position is bigger than the gap between any other best player in the NFL and the next best guy at his position, with the one possible exception of Justin Tucker, kicker, and he's a kicker, so nobody cares. Um, <laughs> right. But, like, Donald is just absurd. Like, no matter how you pull the numbers, I keep saying that no matter how good you think he is, you're underselling it. You're underrating just how ridiculous he is. You know, again, Ben has been pulling through this all blocking data, and, like, Aaron Donald would be one of the best pass rushers in the NFL if you just looked at his one-on-one edge rushing alignments. Like, if you played him as a legitimate edge rusher, he would be as good as the best pass rushers in the NFL. Um as an interior player, he's just on a completely different sphere of pass rush. He way off on his own. He's so far ahead of anybody else. It's ridiculous. Again, the idea that an interior player dominates the NFL in terms of pressure, rates, numbers, pass rushing period would be like a tight end leading the NFL in receiving every single year at a time where the receiving where wide receiver is full of the Julio Jones, the Michael Thomas, the DeAndre Hopkins, the Tyree Kills. It's completely ridiculous, and yet that's what he's doing. Yeah, I like that comparison. I think that makes sense. We always talk about the non-Donald guys to look at. Chris Jones from the Chiefs, Fletcher Cox for the Eagles. I think they're the next two. Uh, Fletcher Cox, especially a couple years ago, was up there. He took a bit of a step back last year, but I think it's, it's clearly those two guys. But there's a lot of good interior defensive players 
Uh, so just Fletcher not a Donald's level. Yeah, Fletcher Cox, I think, is the best power pass rusher in the NFL. And then Chris Jones is the best pass rushing interior player in the NFL that isn't Aaron Donald. So I think those two guys are definitely your next two guys. There's been a bit of a change of guard, maybe, at, at edge defender, right? We, Von Miller and Khalil Mack were the guys for years. And J.J. Watt, at one point, don't forget, played on the interior his first few years, legitimately moved to the edge, which was a fascinating story in and of itself, right? The guy's 290 pounds, freak athletically. They took him from that interior three-technique position, just said, here, rush against tackles. It's more challenging. You're not, you know, you're going to get more pressure overall, but it's still tough to beat tackles, and he dominated. J.J. Watt has been hurt and banged up. Von Miller, we're five straight podcasts now, mentioning him coming off of his worst year. Khalil Mack, a bit of a step back last year, but those guys have been just awesome over the last couple years. But now you've got T.J. Watt, coming off of the year where he was the highest graded guy last season. Miles Garrett, uh, when he's on the field, is is awesome. Chase Young is in the league now, too. We've got a whole youth movement, I think, over uh, on the edge. Yeah, they, I, I don't know if there's ever been a better time in the league for just dominant edge rushers. I think, you know, J.J. Watt was the guy we ended up settling on. Even post-injuries, J.J. Watt has been playing at an insane level. Not quite the level he was before that, but really, really good. Cameron Jordan might be the last sort of the most consistent edge rusher still left standing. If you consider that Khalil Mack and, and Von Miller took steps backwards last season, Cameron Jordan's just been trucking on at that level that's right up there with those top guys, maybe a half step back. Um, then you've got like Nick Bosa not only broke but shattered the single-season rookie pressures record that we had. Like his pressure uh, number 80, 84, I think, last year, or 80, um, last season was – that's crazy. Like the previous high was 64 and then 60 for Von Miller and Alden Smith or the other way around Alden Smith and then Von Miller back in 2011. So that's a record that stood for the better part of a decade. Um, and don't forget that, a lot, you know, that it's 102, including the playoffs. So, you know, he had a three game stretch in the playoffs yeah. where he was really good as well. Right. Don't forget that a lot of these guys, even Watt, even Donald, do start to even get better in, se- in year two. I think you know, Khalil Mack saying. took a huge step forward in year two. Watt did, Donald did, Von Miller, I think, and Alden probably are the two guys who did step in and have those those top-notch rookie seasons and then just kind of you know kept it going for at least a little bit. But that's bit. kind of my point, right, is yeah. that Nick Bosa was already one of the best pass rushers in the NFL, and that was as a rookie. Potentially, there's more to come in year two. Like, T.J. Watt has had that far more clear step 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 up to being elite and then miles garrett before he took a helmet and brain mason rudolph over the head with it was playing as well as any pass rusher in the nfl like he had finally become the sort of realization of all that physical talent his pass rushing grade was basically the same as tj watts who ended up finishing the year as the best graded pass rusher garrett was right up there for that half season stretch so potentially He's the best pass rusher in the NFL heading into this season. We just need to see it again for a full year. And I'll, I'll just throw Calais Campbell's name in, uh, in the mix as well. Depending on how you classify him, where he lines up with the Ravens, he now has four straight years grading at 90-plus. We always joke about how players don't just get better in a straight line. Calais Campbell could be the actual exception uh, because he had, early in his career, grades in the 50s, low 60s. He made it up into the 70s for a couple years, two years in the 80s. Four years in the 90s, it has been continued improvement for Calais Campbell now heading into like year 12. 
Um, so good for him. And if he is an edge for Baltimore, best run defending edge yeah. defender who could still get after the quarterback and move around the D line. I think he'll move back in to an interior role more uh more full time for the Ravens. Yeah, and actually that put, sure. that probably puts him back in that puts him in the conversation for that, to be honest, because it was a True. year where he was the best interior player in the NFL that wasn't Aaron Donald. The other thing that I love about Calais Campbell is he's had four straight years now with a PFF grade above ninety and all four of them came after he turned thirty. Yeah. Like again, that's not supposed to happen either. You questioning him too? No. Hmm. I would never question a man that large. No. Large human. He's also yes. got so he's. I mean, you're six nine ish as well, Tense. right? Now, a he's got he's got some more girth than you have, right? He's a larger human being. He's he's got more of an intimidation factor. But two, he's got the voice that belongs with a six nine human being. Have you heard him talk? Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, like he's no. You don't. Well, I'm sound trying like, to be fan friendly here. It's my job, right? Have a fan friendly voice, like. There was so Calais Campbell, and then the other one that struck me is that there's a couple of guys in the the Last Dance that had that voice. You know, Scotty Pippen. Like, Scotty Pippen talks like a guy that's six nine. Right, the voice is supposed to be like through the floor deep. Like that's what Calais Campbell talks like, and that's what Scotty <laughs> Pippen talk like. Good for Calais. Proud you don't him. have that. That's part of Thanks. your like lack of intimidation factor you've got going there. Let's get into the back seven. I I see who you wrote down at safety, and I just. Can I punch you through my computer? You're missing a name. Look, if you stop whinging about your Derwin James, honest to God, you and George never shut the fuck up about Derwin James. Let's talk about Bobby Wagner at linebacker. He's the guy now with uh, Luke Keekley moving on? I think so, although it kind of depends. Like, the Seahawks are going to screw him again if they run that like base-heavy defense all season long. Um, I think Wagner is the guy. Like He was right up there with Keekley. His grade tumble last year, but it's because the Seahawks played base on like 75% of their snaps, so they kept all three linebackers on the field, even against slot receivers, and they just got relentlessly targeted. So, you know, Bobby Wagner took issue with the coverage stats we had of how much he'd given up, and it's like, look, it's not that you're, it's not that you're bad. It's that you're just being put in crappy situations. You're being hung out to dry in these shallow zones when it should be like a slot, a slot corner out there dealing with this crap. Um, so I think Wagner is the best guy. It's just I don't know how I don't know how closely his grade is going to reflect that next year because of what the Seahawks do. The other guys, I think linebacker of all the positions, because of the nature of it, it is driven by um, a lot of situations that you put in, as to your point. Um, but also it's just an inconsistent position um, in general. You'll have years where guys like Levante David might be the highest graded guy. You'll have years where Eric Kendricks has a great season. I think we'll see... Um, uh, Darius Leonard in that mix. Uh, old old friend Darius Leonard from the podcast. He had the number six grade He's during the regular season. With us again, because he didn't make the top fifty. Yeah, I mean, dude, he didn't make the one hundred and one for last season. How are you going to make the one hundred and fifty going into twenty twenty? I'm just saying, his people are upset because we never put him on lists. Well, we'll do a best linebacker list, and he'll probably crack the top ten. <laughs> Wait till we put him at eight. He'll be real mad. Let's get him back on here. Get him back on. I, would, I don't think he's going to do it anymore. He's upset. He's mad. We don't put him on a list. Yeah, he was mad last time, and he was a great interview. We talked through That's it. I thought, I thought we uh, thought we made him a – no, there's no way we made him a fan. Um, <laughs> Deion Jones, too, the other guy that we always yeah, uh, yeah. talk about as you know the modern prototype. Like, if you're going to be good at something, be good at covering and range and making plays on the ball, Deion Jones has all that. 
Uh, Demario Davis has been playing at an insane level recently. And then the other name... Is he the Calais uh, Campbell Award? How old is he? Possibly, 30? yeah. And then the last, the guy that's coming up fast is Alexander Johnson, who, you know, is way smaller sample size than any of these other guys. But, like, if he plays, if he continues at this rate, like, he'll be right up there as well. He's got that old, like, uh, Chris Borland breakdown where he was just like a monster against the run and pretty good yeah. in coverage. Like Chris Borland was, after he retired, after one year, like Chris Borland looked incredible. And I think we actually went back and graded 2011 Russell Wilson at Wisconsin, and Borland graded really well there. He would he would have been one of those guys that we uh, were behind, I think, in college as far as grading goes, who just you know went third round or whatever it was because he was undersized. I never got to see Borland long term. What if it was a fascinating run for the Niners because Navarro Bowman? When, if we were doing linebackers, right. Patrick eight or Willis, 10 years ago, Navarro Bowman, Chris Borland, back to back to back. Yeah, Bowman and Willis were legitimately top, both top three linebackers for mm-hmm. four or five years, right? In, in the same defense. In the same defense, um, and then Willis retires out of nowhere. Chris Borland comes in and is extremely productive. I think it was 2014. It was like, all right, look at this linebacker factory, you know, that the Niners have, and then Borland retired after one year and then you know hasn't really been the same as far as replacing those guys but um bobby wagner best linebacker uh, how about cornerback stefan gilmore was our top guy i think the grade doesn't say it exactly but this is where role and situation like his work just in single coverage i need to pull this up this number his numbers in single coverage because he's been just incredible given the role that he's put in in that patriots defense yeah, the Patriots defense is interesting because they do um, generally scheme guys to the, to the right situation. They, you know, they were one of the most intriguing landing spots when they drafted our guy Juwan Bentley, who had that insane college profile of just dominant against the run, questionable in coverage. But he goes to the Patriots, and you're like, all right, that's interesting because that's a team that will actually put him in a good spot to do what he does well and not suck at the things that he doesn't. Um. Is there any so Richard Sherman was the other guy that we actually debated, uh, you know, as the top corner in the league. There are different types of players. We have to explain this on every podcast too. Sherman's still awesome at what he does, but I think going forward and given the role that Gilmore's put in, I think he's definitely been the top guy over the last three years. Yeah, I think so. I think also at some point, even though that was an incredible run from Sherman last year, like how old is he now? Like thirty-two. You've got to expect at some point that starts to fall off. Don't um, don't hate on that. I'm not. I'm just saying he's 32. Like it's hard to be the best cornerback in the NFL when you're 32. All right. So looking at just when targeted in single coverage. Here's the way I'm breaking it down. When targeted in single coverage, guys with at least a hundred targets over the last couple of years. Now understand this. I'm focused on targets because, I mean, guys are targeted more often like when they're open. Like most of the time quarterback's going to look at you say you're open i'm going to throw it to you so the receiver generally has the advantage here stefan gilmore has a pff coverage grade of 90.6 when targeted in single coverage allowing a completion percentage of 37 percent over the last three years there's only three guys above 80 and everybody else is in the 40s so it's stefan gilmore at 90 marlon humphrey 85.6 with the Ravens, and then Casey Hayward, 84.2 with the Chargers. All the other good corners, too. Byron Jones, Tredavious White, William Jackson, Jalen Ramsey, all these guys are just in a whole different ballpark. Jair Alexander of lower. Chris Harris, all got – it's just – 
Gilmore's been incredible. Gilmore also is this really interesting case study in terms of, so one of these, you know, the, the cornerback debate of do you track receivers or do you not, right? Because the idea that if you do, it's harder, it's better, it's, it, get, it gets you boosted up. Um, but Gilmore is, has, is an interesting thing of, well, he tracks receivers, but it's not usually a number one receiver, or it's often not a number one receiver. So he tracks specific receivers as opposed to, you're tracking the best receiver they have, which is the like the like that's the Revis idea, right? Right. Revis idea is you're taking the best receiver, whoever it is, you're following them. End of end of story. Um, the Patriots have taken another level. It's like, well, we're going to scheme up specific matchups, and you're going to track that receiver, and then we'll deal with the other guys. So he's in this fascinating situation of well, he's being asked to track, which is harder, but he's being but he's doing so asked to track a guy that they really think that he will win against every you know every uh, every single snap so it's it's sort of like the Aaron Rodgers pass protection thing right it's what is does that net out as a wash is that still harder because he's tracking is it actually easier because you're being schemed up a matchup against a guy they think you'll beat every single play hmm. that's a good point too I think most of the most of the assignments are challenging but like Tyreek Hill it, usually what the Patriots do is say hey Stephon Gilmore go get the best route runner or more of like the high volume guy cover him we're going to use uh, more of a speed corner for their speed receiver or and, and put a safety over the top so another guy's getting you know that hmm. double team type of attention Gilmore is generally on an island so yeah it is it is interesting because sometimes it's not always the most difficult. Right. So I don't like. Sure. I'm, yeah, I'm not making a point with that. I'm just saying that I don't have an answer to that either. But I think that's something that actually people need to think about and talk about when they're evaluating Gilmore. Right? It's he's he has a unique role in terms of that tracking stuff because he's being he's being asked to track, but he's being set up specifically against a receiver that he should have the advantage over overall. So I don't know. I don't know where that nets out, and I, I I don't know that anybody else does either, but I think it's something to be aware of when you evaluate it. Let's wrap up the defense with the safety position. Uh, Jamal Adams was the highest-ranked safety. I, I think him and Derwin James are both right there as do-it-all safeties, just as they were in 2018, just because Derwin was a little banged up in 2019. Doesn't change the fact that they do very much similar stuff. I think Harrison Smith is right up there as well with do yeah. it all safeties. Um, um, if we're just going free safety, if we said give me the next center field, not necessarily center fielder, but guy that's going to play deep, deep half, deep center field, is it Kevin Byard, Tennessee Titans, or Anthony Harris? Anthony Harris would be in that conversation. Earl Thomas. I mean, Earl Thomas still, is still there. It's yeah. just that the the Ravens aren't using him in that role anymore. Yeah. But I think he's, I mean, he remains the prototype for that position like until someone else comes along. Anthony Harris, I think, is that style of player as well. Um, and Bayard is maybe the most consistent free safety that we've seen for a while. Uh, people were complaining that we didn't talk about Justin Simmons enough on one of the podcasts. He's had, he was awesome last year, highest graded regular season safety last year. Um, it was the only really good season that he had. I think much like a lot of these other guys on the list, uh, besides Derwin, he gets a pass. Um, right. We want to see it for more than one season. <laughs> from these so, guys yeah the there's a so when i i wrote the list of uh like 10 guys that were close and didn't quite make the 101 and the one guy from that list that i like if we were doing it again i would have put on is i think we screwed kevin byard i, th I think he should have been on the list now yeah. that i look back and i think we waited yeah, we last did. season too much well he wasn't as good last season right but the point yeah. is he'd had two 
seasons before that that were elite. And we, you know, we, so I get shying away from guys who were really good or really bad or really good last season because we haven't seen enough of it. But so, and Eddie Jackson, right? Eddie Jackson, elite the year before, not so good last season, so he doesn't make it. Fair enough. But Bayard had two not quite Eddie Jackson like seasons, but right up there right. before that. So I think we, we just sort of, we should have erred on the side of him going in and didn't. Uh, Steelers fans are going to mention Minka Fitzpatrick. I think so. The the Dolphins games did happen as well. He was absolutely torched in Week One. Six catches for the a, Dolphins games. Like the fact, like even if you take out the I know. rest of the like, just take out the big games and say what was his baseline, and it was nowhere near the big games level. So it's the nature of the safety position. But like he gave up uh, six catches for 117 yards and three touchdowns in Week One against the Ravens. Okay. Um, he was put into a, a terrible spot <laughs> trying to cover Marquise Brown in the slot and all that stuff. Fine. Um, he did make a ton of big plays for the Steelers last year. And this is just like the linebacker position. When you get to the end of the season, and it's like this guy had five interceptions and pick sixes and four pass breakups and forced fumbles and tackles and all that stuff. You just put numbers out there and it's like, hey, this guy had this great all around season. We take a more nuanced approach, taking all the plays into consideration. Um, safety play, this is another like we got to see it again if, when you have this is eddie jackson in 2018 when eddie, eddie jackson had an incredible run of big plays you get credit for that good job it's tough to sustain make fitzpatrick's going to be in the same spot he was not so, as lights out I, I think a lot of his the analysis though was like with minka without minka which was just which was faulty analysis right who yes. weeks one and two they played tom brady with with a decent weapons and Russell Wilson without Mika Fitzpatrick they didn't play those two guys and of course the defense got better so his grade without those Dolphins games in it just looking at the Pittsburgh games was 84.4 which yep. is basically the same grade as Jimmy Ward for the season right so his grade overall even forgetting the Dolphins games was not the same as a Justin Simmons or Jamal Adams or an Anthony Harris whatever it was a step down then, if you take out that three-game stretch that started the whole thing and created the hype wagon, where oh, he was no, you insane. took that out too. So now you take that out, right? There was like a three-game stretch where he was in like ninety for three straight weeks. He was not anywhere like that from that point onwards. Take that out, and his grade drops to seventy, which puts him where like Malcolm Jenkins, Jeff Heath, like Oof. it, it puts him rank average. So let's just say, all right, you can't do that. Those games happened. But that's the baseline you're dealing with. Like, the elite three-game stretch drags him up from a baseline of, like, rank average safety play to it's, somewhere way more impressive. It's the so, nature of the safety position, especially free safety. And I think that's why seeing Anthony Harris do it for two years, you know, that makes you believe in him a little bit. You, you have to see bigger sample sizes with, with safeties, especially as they get further away from the football. Yeah, I mean, Fitzpatrick just did not play as well as that he showed what he's capable of in that three-game stretch, but overall did not play at that level. Like, it was that three-game stretch of 90s. The last two games was a 39 and a 60. The game before that was a 66. And then there were three more games in the 70s. Like, this is... That's not his level. We just try to piss off as many Steelers folks as, as possible here. Uh, kicker. You what was good. You added kicker and punter to this list. Justin Tucker at kicker. We already mentioned that. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. And... um Hunter? Yeah. And the, the Tucker thing is, is legit in terms of he might be the only player other than Aaron Donald that's like so far beyond everyone else it's absurd. Like when guys like Timo, 
you know, dove into data points for, for kickers and that kind of thing. Like he's so far ahead of like expected outcome. It's, it's absurd, particularly when you consider that it's not like he's kicking in a dome every week. Um, right. You'll be, you know, you'll, you'll I appreciate that point. It, it matters. Yeah, it matters. Dome guy. Um, punter, I think is harder. Uh, I think long term, it's been Thomas Morstead for the past few years, but last season, Brett Kern was, I think by far and away the best punter. And so it's interesting, right? People, I don't know that anybody has any idea how to judge punters. It's all like net yardage and all that kind of crap, right? But that's so determined on like the coverage unit and a bunch of other things. PFF's punt grading stuff might be the best stuff that we do. I love it. Um, It's really interesting because we had this, it was developed in large part with the aid of NFL punters. Chris Cluey, we, so we had this system that was, rudimentary enough but still factored in like field position that kind of stuff um to start with and then we went to chris cluey and we said hey you know we're trying to fact we're trying to get more nuance with this have you got anything that would help and he's like hey i've got like a whole system that i've created here just on the side while i've been bored being a punter in the nfl punters have he time. had this right he had the system almost start to finish that we've made a, little, a few tweaks to down the line with some more input from nfl guys but broadly speaking is what it is and so it, it's this like matrix that involves field position, punt direction, hang time, like the, these succession of things together, um, and then you know landing spot, etc. That determine essentially how good the punt is. Um, and when you do that, so it eliminates the site. Look, if you're kicking from the opponent's forty-eight yard line, it's different than if you're kicking from your own five, right? And yet, net return or whatever, net yardage, net whatever, it's all going to look the same. So you have to look at the exact punt that was involved and where you want that ball to go in order to come up with the right grades. And when you do that, you can end up with some wildly different grades than you would if you were just looking at net average. But I think you end up with a vastly superior answer to these questions. Yeah, I mean, we're basically giving credit. Like, if you drop it on the four-yard line with proper hang time in the right location, whether it bounces into the end zone, unluckily, or your coverage team covers it or your coverage team is there and then they just you know screw it up and it goes in the end zone like you're getting the same punt grade it's it's what we do at pff is try to isolate the play of everybody just like you make a great throw it gets dropped you get credit for the great throw so we do our best when it comes to punting so i think thomas morstead because of that track record brett kern definitely did have a great year 90 plus during the regular season by far the highest grade that we had it's over over premium stats 2.0 so get over there right now for all your punter grades they're pretty awesome Greats for everybody. Every single play, Sam. PSV2. Mm-hmm. All part of PFF Elite. So we made it. Best players at every single position. Uh, we talked for an hour and a half or so because there's some debate. It's part of the fun, right? I mean, that's that's what football is. We got, we'll have more and more of this as we finish out the offseason and get a little bit closer to training camp, Sam. Don't forget, we also spent some time discussing Hackenberg's future as a baseball pitcher. We did. I think we'll have some nice timestamps there. Uh, Steve predicts Hackenberg does not make it to the big leagues, but, you know, toll around a a ball or something like that for, like, a walking inning or whatever, you know. Hmm. I think that'll... He'll he'll be more accurate than Jason Neighborgall. I'll say that, Sam. Okay. I wonder if Jason listens to our podcast. That guy... Is he uh, into the Illuminati as well, or is that I just have Larry? No idea. I don't know about Jason's uh, off-field <laughs> interests, but I do know he once threw 103, and then literally had no idea where to throw a ball, but still had a job trying to. 
and it led to some of the worst stats you'll see in professional history. Jason Nabergal, poor guy. He got one out in an entire month, Sam, over like 10 outings. That doesn't like, seem good. Like he would just come in and walk everybody, hit everybody, throw wild pitches. He got one out in the month of August in 2006. But he threw 103, so you just got to keep giving him opportunities. 103 seems fast. Yeah, well, that year they what's, told him to dial it down and just keep it under 98 so he could try to throw strikes. It didn't work. <laughs> None of it worked. What's the, uh, like, what's the record? What's the high? I think Araldus Chapman hit over like 105 point something at one point. That is confirmed. Yeah. That's what, really like, fast. What is the... Guy for the like uh, is, Cardinals, too, I think was up there. I mean, this is... How much... When you scale it from, like, 98 to 105, right? How much is 8 miles an hour? Significant. Like, because it's coming at you fast as hell anyway. You have point, The extra 8 miles an hour is really... Yeah, because, I mean, the difference from 98 to 105 is the difference between 98 to 90. Well, you know, yeah. in just pure miles an hour. And that is a massive difference. If I throw 90, that looks like a beach ball to NFL, to major league <laughs> hitters. If I throw 98, it's like a smaller beach ball. You know, it's harder to hit. Hmm. Um, it absolutely, you get 0.4 seconds to make a decision and then swing the bat yeah. and hit it. 0.4 seconds. So if you start but shaving like, off of that to 0.35. That's kind of point. Like, if you've got 0.4, like what is the extra 8 mile an hour taking that down to that's it's pretty significant because the barrel of the bat's like this big you have to put the ball this this is how big the barrel of the bat is the bat itself is this big the barrel's this big no i know that so that's not it's not easy man all right you're talking i was a 125 hitter in professional baseball you think it's easy hitting i mean not for you not for me but you've got that, that whole like limbs thing working yeah. against you I mean, the fact that i actually have control. a professional hit in triple a though like that's it's my greatest achievement. I mean, just look. I, I've seen like vaguely tall people have trouble keeping their limbs in check. <laughs> like the idea that you can get anything on the same page and swing a bat towards a ball is just phenomenal in and of itself. I raked in high school when guys are throwing seventy-eight, just like belt high. <laughs> I can crush that thing, crush it. Both sides of the plate too, lefty, righty. Yeah, well, you're like the guy that occasionally connects with the driver in golf and just beans yes. that thing like 350 yards I do. just by sheer freak of like physics. Yes, I've accidentally driven some like 400-yard greens, I think, before. Right. I've you know, just gotten close at least. But like I would imagine your strike rate in terms of like actually connecting with the bad. thing at all is like 1 in 10. Very bad, very bad. Yeah. Very ugly golfer, but it's fun. When you do have that one that just connects. You need to get yourself – You. People, if you haven't Googled Peter Crouch golf, you need to go do that because that's how I imagine Steve looks when he's playing with some regular size clubs. It's like <laughs> I've never had clubs that actually, you know. That's what it means. Yeah, Every I've time you play those. golf, it must look like Peter Crouch. It looks like Peter Crouch, yes. I think we have a better podcast than him. We're always right next to him on the rankings, you know, always battling. He had, a, he had a, an outstanding idea, though, for a podcast that I think is better than anything we've ever done. Oh, no. So. There's a there's a soccer former soccer player and manager called Roy Keane who's like this legendary crotchety old man right that just legendarily pissed off and irritated at everything so and he's he maintains this to like people wanting a picture with him so if you go and like ask him for a picture he routinely gets like pissed off at these people so Crouch had this idea of like creating getting these all these selfie pictures of Roy Keane. 
and captioning them with what Roy Keane said when he was asked for the photograph and like having it as an art gallery installation. So it'd be like a picture of this guy standing at Roy Keane while he's holding an ice cream. He's like, what, when I'm eating my fucking ice cream? It's just like all these captions. They're just amazing. Like every single one of these is like just incredible. The, this was the dude's answer. So one of them was like, you know, yeah, but hurry the hell up because otherwise everyone will want one. Like stuff like that. Just every one of these pictures of him just looking there, looking annoyed at the camera. Well, some guys like, you know, it's they're just amazing. Do we have like, anybody we can do that thing. with? Chris is too nice. Chris, Chris handles every photo op really well. Yeah. Nobody wants Neil's picture, but I imagine his reactions would be similar, right? Yeah, no, not I think really. he'd he'd kidding. get he'd get a no. Neil's a people get, person. He'd lose himself in the fame. He'd get starstruck by his that's, own fame. You that's know, a he'd, good point. He'd enjoy it. Good point. We could just who, capture who, deal at the urinal photos or something like that. I can't think that many uh, NFL people that would uh, that hate that as much as Roy Keane would. Belichick. Belichick, maybe. Yeah, I could see that. He's like sneaky nice though, like off camera. He's just yeah. He wouldn't. He would just well. like he wouldn't tell you how annoyed he was. He would just give you the like. Uh, it is what it like is. the photo would just be him looking like stoic. Another picture. It is what it is. I'm just. I'm on to the next picture. All right, let's wrap it up. That's enough. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll have another great topic for Thursday. Appreciate everybody. See you guys Thursday.